And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and you're listening to the Force 5 Podcast, where I force a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. Today, my guest is screenwriter and fellow podcaster Carly Street. She's going to be coming to us from across the pond. I watched a few things this week, which I'll get into in a second, but wanted to mention first that I did see Mortal Kombat this week. And that review is going to be after the credits roll because there's going to be um, there's going to be spoilers in that one. So if you've seen it already or you have no interest in seeing it and want to know my spoiler laden thoughts on it, it will be posted after the credits roll. I hope you stick around for the review. And uh, if you don't, if you haven't seen it yet, go watch the movie, then come back and listen to that review. That being said, let's get to what else I've seen this week. First up is the new Netflix film, The Mitchells vs. The Machines. We all want to be the perfect family. But who's perfect, right? Every family has its challenges, from picture day to picky eaters. For my family, our greatest challenge, probably the machine apocalypse. A dysfunctional, argumentative family finds themselves needing to work together after a tech designer accidentally ignites the robot apocalypse. Think a kid's version of the first day of Skynet becoming sentient. Now, when you have a three-year-old, you jump on Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever, and you just scroll through film after film after film, but once one catches your kid's eye. To quote Kyle Reese from the above-mentioned Terminator, it can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop, ever, until he's watching Puppy Pals. So when the Mitchells versus the Machines caught his eye, I didn't have high hopes. And then I saw the producers. This is from Lord and Miller, the same team, the purveyors of great films like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and the Lego Movie. Could they come through again? The answer is yes. This movie rules. I had so much fun with this film, way more than my kid did probably. There's a lot to love here. Every part of this film worked for me. The characters are fantastic and full of life, even down to the family dog. The music is great. The animation is beautiful and varied with a unique style that it's reminiscent of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, but it's still its own thing. The story is this grand adventure that builds in scope, and if you've seen any kids' film before, you'll know exactly where the movie's heading, but the ride is so fun, and, and it does have a lot of unexpected twists. It's funny, it's really funny, to the point that I was hard laughing at several parts, and as you'd expect, it's got a ton of heart. Simply put, this movie is amazing. I'm not sure if I like it more than Into the Spider-Verse. I think it's probably second on the list, but it's close. Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe wrote and directed the film, and I cannot wait to follow them to see what they come up with next. It has something for everyone. It even has a Kill Bill reference. If you have kids, watch it with the family. If you don't, watch it anyway. It's a little bit long, but that's my only criticism of the movie. It's hard to imagine this not being in my top 10 at the end of the year. Loved the Mitchells versus the Machines. All right, on to something that I did not love as much. Uh, this one is an Amazon original film, just came out from 2021, called Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. I got nothing left. 
their plan is a series of strategic attacks all over the world. We have to respond. I need to be on that team. Lieutenant Commander Greer, you lead the mission. I'm leaving out the plan field. CIA doesn't support any further investigation into your wife's murder. They had no right to take so much from me. This is a gold mission. They know exactly where we'd be. Ex-Navy SEAL John Kelly finds himself incapacitated after an attack on his home that leaves his wife and unborn baby dead. The attack is connected to a previous mission that he and his squad took part in. Or is it? Of course, nothing is as it seems because Tom Clancy's name is slapped on the front of the title. I'm always excited to see Michael B. Jordan in something because he's awesome, and he was awesome here too. He's the best part of this film. He gets to flex his acting muscles and his real muscles, and goddamn, they're glorious. Unfortunately, the action isn't memorable, the script is messy as hell, and the movie just isn't as clever as it thinks it is. The action in the first half of the movie is fine. I'm a sucker for military raids and there's a cool plane crash sequence, but once the team gets to Russia, the big action set piece in this apartment building is just confusing. I'm going to talk about some spoilers here for Without Remorse, so if you still want to see it, check out for like a minute, skip ahead. Uh, I don't really recommend this film, but if you really want to see it, skip ahead a minute. Spoilers coming now. The grand plan is to get these guys into this apartment building so that they can die, leaving dead U.S. soldiers on Russian soil to look like retaliation for the dead Russian soldiers on U.S. soil. The CIA, of course, double-crossing their own people, has three snipers in other buildings and a guy with C4 strapped to his chest. So, my question is, what do you need the guy with the bomb for? Why not just have the snipers take out a couple of Navy SEALs? And speaking of those snipers, why did the CIA send the three worst snipers to this job, which happens to be so important? These guys couldn't hit water aiming from the deck of a floating boat. Collectively, they probably take 40 shots and deal one hit to somebody's stomach and another to somebody's leg. The ensuing raid by the Russian SWAT team or military or whatever they are is a big old disaster too. There's just no reasonable way that John Kelly should have left that building and the way he got out wasn't interesting at all. There's also a scene in which John Kelly ambushes a Russian diplomat, lights the car on fire with gas, and then gets into the car to get information. And then he just pops out and gets arrested. Like, that that's your plan? What if the Russian hadn't said anything? What, what, what kind of plan is that, John Kelly? The movie thinks that it's just the bee's knees with the twists and turns, but it's not. It positions one of these CIA leads as a questionable presence on the team, expecting the audience to say, yep, he must be in on it. But if you've seen any spy movie in the past 100 years, you know immediately that it's a misdirection. This sleight of hand is even more tipped when you cast Guy Pierce in a role that makes him appear trustworthy. It's Guy Pierce, of course he's the bad guy. And I have to mention the last sequence in this film. The last sequence is unbelievably stupid. John Kelly has survived and he's taking Pierce hostage. They're driving towards his family's ranch, so Pierce gives up the goods. But what's Kelly's endgame? Of course, it's to record Pierce confessing to the stuff so he can be free again, and then to kill Pierce to make it look like a suicide, aided by his commanding officer in the SEALs. 
Instead of just driving him to a wooded area and shooting him in the head to make it look like a self-inflicted wound, Kelly drives the SUV off of a bridge, splashing the car into the Potomac. The car sinks and both men are presumed drowned until it's revealed that the commanding officer was just waiting down there in a diving suit. I guess she then just switches uh, Guy Pearson to the driver's seat and the media assumes that an SUV just crossed through traffic, launched through the guardrail to the water below, and it's a suicide. Then they go and attend John's fake funeral with John in the back seat. The latter half of this movie was garbage. The hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, the 90s had some good Tom Clancy movies. So what happened? This feels less like a tentpole film for Michael B. Jordan as Clancy's other non-Jack Ryan character, and more like a vehicle that Scott Adkins should have been leading. Tom Clancy's Without Remorse is undeniably stupid, and with action that isn't very memorable, it's just very hard to recommend this film. Alright, one more film here. I want to talk about the 1987 gem, The Hidden. I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. Something strange is happening. To some ordinary people. Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, rob a bank? An alien being has come to planet Earth with two goals. To listen to rock music and go on crime sprees. It does this by taking over people's bodies, upgrading to new hosts when necessary. A normal cop and a weird FBI agent are on the case trying to figure out why normal, law-abiding citizens are going nuts all of a sudden. Late 80s sci-fi movies can be very hit or miss, especially when you get to the blockbuster bottom shelf style titles, but The Hidden is pretty great. For starters, the film never slows down. It plants us directly into the middle of a bank heist via CCTV as a man with a shotgun starts blowing people away. He then calmly walks out to a Ferrari parked out front, pops in a rock cassette, and then smashes the gas, and all of a sudden we're in a car chase. This alien being wants to have fun causing chaos. It's straight out of like Grand Theft Auto. The film rarely slows down from this breakneck pace as the alien jumps from body to body, inhabiting everyone from middle-aged white men to a stripper. With a plot as bizarre as this, it would be easy to bungle the ending, but the final act of this film is awesome. As I mentioned before, the film never really takes its foot off the gas, but it really turns it up to 11 in the last 20 minutes. The main cop is the least interesting part of this film, which holds it back from truly being great. Kyle MacLachlan plays Lloyd Gallagher, an FBI agent who inserts himself into the investigation. He's awkward and weird, but clearly knows more than the cops about what's going on. I thought his character was endearing in a unique way as the sweater started to unravel and you finally realize what's going on. Bottom line, The Hidden was an awesome sci-fi surprise that's easy to recommend. The film is really smart despite its bonkers concept, it looks good, it has cool music, awesome cars, and the action just doesn't let up. It's almost time to get Carly Street here so that she and I can talk unintentionally funny films. But before we do, let's talk about something that isn't funny. This is not funny at all. When you misplace your spatula. Think about how many things you have to flip in your kitchen. Burgers eggs, so much more. You think Gordon Ramsay got where he is today by chance? No. He got there by having a dope spatula, and you can too. 
thanks to today's sponsor, Spatula City. Buddy, where's the spatula? Okay, kids, let's go. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Thousands to choose from in every shape, size, and color. And because we eliminate the middleman, we can sell all our spatulas factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to buy name brand spatulas at a fraction of retail cost? Spatula City! Spatula City! And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Buy nine spatulas, get the tenth one for just one penny. Don't forget, they make great Christmas presents. And what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spatula? Spatula City! Spatula City! This is the Force 5 Podcast, and joining me tonight from a mere 5,100 miles to my right, my furthest guest I've ever had, we've got Carly Street. How are you, Carly? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. Carly is a screenwriter, a producer, a playwright. She runs Resurrection Films with director Jason Morris, and she's the co-host of the Speak Easy Noir podcast. Uh, Is there anything that you don't do? Normal things (laughs) that human beings do. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine you wouldn't have much time. Uh, Tell us about your podcast. Tell us about your film career. I'm interested. I'll do the podcast first because that's more fun at the minute. Um. Basically, obviously, with COVID-19 and everything that's happened, the film industry kind of took a bit of a hiatus and we had uh, quite a few projects that we were kind of rolling with that we had to kind of just put the brakes on. And we got a little stir crazy, as everybody probably did. And during one of our many ridiculous conversations that we have at stupid o'clock in the morning, we decided people would love to listen to us both ramble on about films. So lo and behold, two microphones later, we decided to... um, do the Speakeasy Noir podcast. Um, it seems to be doing okay so far. People seem to enjoy our sort of ramblings and slight dissecting of film noir. <laughs> what are some of your favorite movies in general? Like, they don't have to be noir films, but what are some of your favorite flicks? Um, oh, God, I hate these questions because <laughs> I have so many. I can't just name one. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a mixed bag, really, because I like film noir. Film noir kind of got me started wanting to write films. So it's always got a special place, you know, stuff like Conflict and Maltese Falcon and all those kind of films. But then I'm such a a sucker for just rubbish as well. (laughs) I love rubbish films, as you'll probably find out in a minute. Um, I really like sci-fi films, and I've always really tried to write sci-fi films, and I've always thought that I'm fantastic at writing sci-fi films, and I'm really not. (laughs) But I still enjoy watching them very, very much. Stuff like The Fifth Element and... I'm a mad Star Trek nut. Any Star Trek film you put in front of me, it's on repeat. My daughter hates it. I'm along the same lines. I like movies that people would consider to be bad movies. But, I mean, I was very excited when you picked this topic. Oh, good. (laughs) And the topic, of course, is five unintentionally funny films. Is your list in any kind of order? Um, no. Okay, so here's the thing. I got in a little bit of a vortex trying to pick the films and I got I got I lost like three days. And I had too many to pick and I had to narrow it down to five and then I realized that I picked some that were listed as comedies. So I was like, ah, well that's not gonna work. <laughs> so I had to kind of re go back to my list and have things that were marketed as serious films. Yeah, it's tough to have an unintentional comedy that's uh listed as a comedy. 
Yeah. I had the Power Rangers movie in there for like a week and a half. And then my husband just went, you do know that's meant for kids, so it's probably meant to be funny. <laughs> oh, that's off the table now. <laughs> I also had a ton of movies that I could have put on here. And uh, it was it was tough narrowing it down to four or five. It was tough narrowing it down to five. Uh, that would be weird if I had narrowed it down to four, considering this is not the Force 4 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Carly Street. Let's get to the list. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five. The top five. Five unintentionally funny films. Let's kick it off. What's number five on your list of five unintentionally funny films? Number five is Deep Blue Sea. In the most advanced research facility in the world. Wow. Beneath its glassy surface, a world of gliding monsters. A team of specialists is working against the clock. Did someone order the fish? On an experiment to benefit mankind. Sharks never show any loss of brain activity as they age. We're this close to the reactivation of human brain cell. But before they can save millions of lives, Tell me I didn't see that. They recognize that gun. It's impossible. Sharks do not swim backwards. They can't. They'll have to find a way to save their own. I like to summarize things up with just two words. So for Deep Blue Sea, I've got deranged sharks. <laughs> Who doesn't like deranged sharks? And uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yes. And when he gets eaten by a deranged shark halfway through the film, that is such a psycho move. It's true. It's been a long time since I've seen Deep Blue Sea, but uh, what else did you find funny about it? Oh, this is just so much. I had to stop. I was watching it with my daughter and she's just looking at me gone out. Like, what are you watching? And I'm just appreciate this child. Just the sharks have got their own theme song. It's like the omen when they're like circling around trying to pen them in. And they've got their own POV shots mm-hmm. when they're going around attacking people. It's like a shark, demented shark POV. It's just... Who doesn't like that? It's a great movie. It's it's a nice slice of genre film disguised as like a commonplace action movie. And I will never get tired of watching people act like there's fire on them or they're engulfed in flames when there's nothing there. <laughs> Good pick. I need to rewatch this one. I haven't seen it in a very long time. You do. And when you rewatch it, just count how many times Thomas Jane spends on the floor. <laughs> he spends more time on the floor than on his feet and he's the only one actually dressed for this aquatic adventure did your daughter enjoy the movie no <laughs> <laughs> she just doesn't <laughs> she just doesn't know how to appreciate it yet she doesn't no okay i'm gonna get to my number five here and it's i think around the same time frame when did deep blue sea come out uh is that like 99 1999 yeah i know it was late 90s this one's also from the late 90s the only way you can really describe this in two words is with the title itself, and that is Face Off. So, once we kidnap Super Cop, then what? Tiny surgery. I'd like to take his, his face off. Excuse me, I have to use the little boy's wee-wee room. 
I nearly picked that one. <laughs> For me, it was between Con Air and Face Off. And Con Air has his accent and his hairstyle, but Face Off has both Nicolas Cage and Travolta. This movie is absolutely <laughs> absurd. Uh, there's two things that I think make this a laugh riot. First off, the performances of the leads, and second off, just the logistics of everything. And I'm going to start off with the acting. Nicolas Cage is always great, but in this film, you have Nicolas Cage playing John Travolta, trying to act like John Travolta, <laughs> being in the body body of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> and it's full crazy. Just the lines that he says, yeah, it's, it's nuts. Second off, I got to mention the logistics. We have a brutal shootout set to the song of Over the Rainbow. Magnet boots in a prison, like a secret prison. We have stunt doubles that look nothing like the main actors. And there's a boat chase scene where you get basically close up, pretty clear shots of these dudes that are clearly not the main actors. Maybe they had a face off as well. <laughs> That's also, that also could be true. And it gets even funnier when you realize that, yes, their faces were swapped, but nothing else was swapped. Yet John Travolta's like strolling into his house, Nicolas Cage in John Travolta's body, strolling into the house, and his wife has no idea that everything below the neck is not John Travolta, like it's Nicolas Cage. Exactly, like what is she on? What if they, what if they given her? They must have drugged her or something, or she really was not invested in that marriage in the first place. <laughs> true, true, like... How many lower halves is she seeing in what must have been a marriage of 10 to 15 years at least? And all of a sudden, she's just like unfazed. She's oh, they're all the same. <laughs> and in the ending, I mean, if you haven't seen Face Off, skip forward a, a minute or two. But I'm guessing everybody's seen Face Off. John Travolta gets his face to. back. Spoiler alert, he gets his face back. Which is fine. Like, they put it back on his face, and it's just like, oh, it was always here. And then he brings a kid home to his wife. Like, surprise, we have a new child. And everybody's just like, this is cool. This is normal. This is great. And then the film ends. <laughs> happy family. One happy family. I've got my new face and my new life. Oh, God. Slash my old face and new life. <laughs> Imagine the life of the kid that they brought home who just walks into another kid's room and he's going to grow up knowing that he replaced this void in this family's heart. It's it's just insane. It's utterly insane, but hilarious the whole ride. That though, that's that's like some sort of metaphysical like exploration though if you think about it because he had a physical face off and then his kids got like a spiritual face off. Oh my god. Maybe it's actually a deep genius film and we've just never known. <laughs> True. Here we are 20 something years later. And we're still uncovering the meanings of face-off. John Woo, you're a genius. Give it an Oscar right now. <laughs> did you know, did you hear that they're making a sequel to this film? What? They are making a sequel to this film. And I think it's Adam Wingard who's making it. Whose face is getting faced off this time? Well, that's a great question. And the director has said that it's going to be a direct sequel. Like, it's not going to be some <gasps> other universe. It's a direct sequel. So I cannot wait to hear the plot of the new face-off. Oh, my God. More people's faces getting taken off. So many faces. It's like sore. Ugh. Hopefully they just call it body-off, and then they do the whole body this time. That would stop any plot holes with wives. <laughs> Maybe. They can just create new plot holes in that face-off universe. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, number four for you. Batman and Robin. My name is Freeze. Learn it well. For it's the chilling sound of your doom. This is the way the world could end. Please, show some mercy. With ice. With a kiss. With venom. I probably should have mentioned this. I'm... poison. Poison ivy. And the only man who can stop them. I freeze. I'm Batman. Can't do it alone. Batman and Robin, simply because if someone said to me right now, other than being rich and, you know, all that kind of stuff, if there's anything that you want in the universe that will make your day, you know, bring joy to your day, it would be Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze following me around all day going, chill, <laughs> and freeze. And making little comments about freezing and chilling. He's so good in that movie. He is so good. I just love that line. What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. <laughs> and then he just like freezes a load of people that can defrost in three minutes. It's just fantastic. And you'll have to remind me, is this the Batman where they decided to make the aesthetic choice to put nipples on the bat suit? This is my two... Well, actually... I went for three-word description here, which was plastic pecs and chill. <laughs> so that says it all, really. Oh, and uh, Chris O'Donnell as Robin, just fantastic. Poison Ivy, Uma Thurman. Yeah, they really tried to cram everything into this movie. They did. They did. I do like that Poison Ivy's all about saving all the plants and the planet, and then she decides to set fire to everything with all the plants in and destroy the world. <laughs> but other than that, she's totally on point. Oh my gosh, your pick of, of Batman and Robin is a perfect segue into like three of my other picks. Oh. I don't even know what to start with. Now I'm excited. I'll go with my number four. I'll just go to my next, my, my superhero movie. I expected this film to be good, and then it started, and I knew it was bad. But then it got so bad that it was funny. But it was never funny enough to be one of those so bad that it's good films. And that's 2020's Wonder Woman 1984. My life hasn't been what you probably think it has. We all have our struggles. Have you ever been in love? A long, long time ago. You? So many times. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> oh, that's interesting because i was on the edge of picking that and i didn't want the internet world to hate me <laughs> well they can hate me because i'm about to shit on it <laughs> so <laughs> creepy in so many ways oh my gosh uh wonder woman 1984 a person's body that is on my list of things to talk about uh first off especially captain kirk's body i know i mean the, the movie started, and I don't know about you, like, I had very high expectations for this movie. Did you like the first one? Yes. I did too. I liked the first one. And the trailer looked really good as well. It starts with this scene in a mall. It was so campy and so dumb that I honestly thought as it was happening that it was going to be some kind of Wonder Woman movie that was being filmed in the movie, like as some kind of in-joke. But it was not. That would have been better. Yes, it was not that. It was playing itself straight. And then we've got a scene in which 
Wonder Woman all of a sudden realizes she can make an airplane invisible. She never uses that again, including a time when she and another dude have to make their way through the White House, through all kinds of armed guards. Why not just make yourself invisible? Because then the movie would have ended after about 10 minutes. (laughs) We're done. We've sorted it. See you later. (laughs) It's very selective power use. And then we've got these ridiculous outfits, but not in a good way. It's as if the people who were making the movie saw a couple of episodes of Saved by the Bell and then went to a Halloween store and bought costumes that were just titled 80s chick and then threw them into the movie because that's what the 80s looked like. And continuing on that theme of the 80s, there's a try-it-on montage of clothes with Chris Pine. It's insane. Uh, and now I have to touch on what you talked about. This this person, they steal a guy's body. The, the whole film revolves around this stone that you can wish for things. It's like a wish stone, which is a cool concept. But she wishes for Chris Pine to be alive. And it basically takes over some guy's body and to her, it's Chris Pine. But she knows this. Like, she, she's aware that this is just some dude on the street. She doesn't care. She essentially takes this guy into extremely dangerous circumstances. Uh, he's got to be branded as a terrorist because he went through the White House, like, beating people up in the White House, Secret Service agents. Uh, she definitely rapes this guy because he has no idea what's going on. If at the end of this film, you know, he, he eventually he's going to turn back into the guy he was before. Uh, what's he going to tell his wife and kids if he's got those waiting for him at home? Exactly. What well, about his job? He probably got fired while he was kicking people in the head at the White House. Oh, 100%. He was definitely fired. He's headed for a divorce. Sorry, I blacked out, didn't know where I was. Even though you saw me on TV with this beautiful woman, I had no idea what was going on. But I'm back now. Yeah. That dude's life is ruined. Yeah. It, Wonder Woman did it is not going to cut the mustard. <laughs> Who's going to believe that? Oh, no, she saved everybody. She's a good person. Really? Is she really? It was so weird watching it because the person who seemed to be having the least amount of fun was Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. She always seems like she's having the worst time in this movie. <laughs> so... That's my number four, Wonder Woman 1984. I apologize, listeners, if you like this film. It's not good. I'm such a good apology. I apologize, (laughs) but I don't apologize. (laughs) I'm more apologizing for their taste in movies if they think Wonder Woman's a great movie. Uh, Great enough to be offended by me picking it apart. Yeah. Carly Street, what's your number three? This is a dicey one. (laughs) We're in sci-fi territory now. Okay. Lost in space. We're lost. Aren't we? Their position is uncharted. That's not one of ours. I'm detecting motion behind you. Their enemies are unknown. Evil knows evil. So my quarters are yours. Why don't you just hang on to your joystick? Warning! Warning! Their survival is uncertain. Give me an excuse to kill you. The Robinson family will travel. I wonder what it'll be like to jettison your body into deep space. Do they have a name for what's wrong with you? Wait up, wait! Beyond the frontiers of adventure. Cool. To find their way home. Get us airborne. Hang on! I'm just going to say one sentence to you. 
Gary Oldman as a giant space spider. <laughs> I'm sold. There's no other reason not to watch it. Gary Oldman as a giant space spider. Ooh, and Matt LeBlanc uh, riding on his friend's fame at this time, I'm sure. He is so funny in this film because he's like trying to do this Jean-Claude Van Damme, <laughs> sweaty, sort of, sort of angry, stoic sort of hero. And he just sounds like the dramatic voiceover guy that does the film trailers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's all I... Like, everybody kind of does that. They all have the little dramatic trailer moment where they're like, Oh, we need to do this. Oh, no, we can't do that. And I quite like that. They're endearing moments. They are. They are. Everyone gets electrocuted as well at some point. <laughs> everybody touches something that electrocutes them. And there's, there's giant space spiders. There's, like, weird time travel in a bubble. It's all going on. And this is played as like straight up sci-fi? Yep, this is like a serious dramatic father and son tale of like, you know, looking after your family and, and all that kind of stuff. And wow, they even have a Walton's routine at the end of the night when they've got lost on the spaceship and they're like, oh, good night, Julie. Good night, Penny. <laughs> and then obviously Gary Oldman is a little pantomime villain who just, he's circling everywhere, just causing chaos. It's fantastic. I've seen Oldman play a lot of great villains, but I've never seen him play a giant spider, so I am intrigued. There we go, then, you see. You haven't lived. Let me tell you about another really odd, laughable villain, and that's in my number three movie, The Happening. There appears to be an event happening. It's some kind of attack. First stage, is loss of speech. Claire. Claire? The second stage, is physical disorientation. The third stage, is fatal. <gasps> this was on my list for so long and I had to bump it for something else. Now you get a chance to talk about it if you want to. I can't talk about the happening without spoiling the ending. So again, if you're a Shyamalan fan and haven't found the time to watch The Happening, just fast forward. Uh, the villain in this is plants. It's the plants. The plants did it. Yeah. The plants, the trees, the grass. Uh, Shyamalan set out to make this horror film in which people inexplicably start killing themselves en masse, which sounds like an awesome premise for a horror movie. And there are some really, really great scenes in the first 20 minutes that play with that aspect. And then you find out what's causing it. Apparently, the Earth now considers humans pests, and the plants are somehow causing people to kill themselves. But the funniest part of instead this... Instead of poisoning them, instead of poisoning them like a plant could do, you know, if you touch a plant and then you touch your, you know, your lips and then you die, which probably would have been better, um, now you just hallucinate and kill yourself. Yeah, they've all of a sudden like started pushing a toxin out and uh, all the plants are just communicating with each other somehow. Yep. But nope. the good news is that we get to ride along with a science teacher played by the hilariously miscast Mark Wahlberg. I just, that is, no, that is what I just can't take serious. Marky <laughs> Mark as a science teacher and a scientist, no. Well, yeah, if you think he can change your mind with his acting skills in The Happening, it's not going to happen. Uh, as you nope. get one of the funniest movie moments of all time, and that's Marky Mark asking a houseplant if it's okay if they use the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a screenwriter. 
I hope that at some point in your career, you can write into a script with a straight face the lines, we can't just stand here as uninvolved observers. Are those people killing themselves? You were with a private. What do we do? We need to do something. Oh, just let me think. I need a second. They released it? We're not near the road. We can't just stand here as uninvolved observers. I need a second, okay? Just give me a second. We're not going to be one of those assholes on the news who watches a crime happen and not do something. We're not assholes. Just a second. There were children in that Elliot, please tell us what to do. I need a second, okay? Why can't anybody give me a goddamn second? I'm going to do that. That's a challenge to you. i that my mission. There's, there's yeah. also and one more scene I want to talk about. When all this stuff starts popping off, Marky Mark's at like a coffee shop or a soda jerk or something. And there's a woman watching a cell phone video of a, a person like getting his arm. He just like puts his arm out there for tigers to eat him in the zoo. And this woman who's watching this video says in the most deadpan way, she says, mother of God, what kind of terrorists are these? <laughs> and when she says that, she's looking at the tigers as if the tigers are terrorists. Oh, the tigers didn't do it, love the plants did. She's totally <laughs> missed them out there. Oh man, The Happening. 2008, that's my number three. Hilarious. On to your number two. I've got two good ones left. I've got, I feel like I've got a little bit of a controversial one here. Ooh. I've got a crime thriller called The Watcher. For Detective Joel Campbell. The case that never closed. His last alias was David Allen Griffin. I worked the case for three years in Los Angeles. We attributed at least 11 homicides to him. Is coming back to haunt him. What's he doing in Chicago? <laughs> I assume he's still strangling young women with piano wire. There's a story, a ritual that he follows. Over the years, I became part of the story. Oh, yeah. Keanu Reeves? Yep. And... The explicit reason why it's in this list and people should watch it is Keanu Reeves is a dancing serial killer. <laughs> what else do you want? John Wick just uh, dons the hood. Yep, and strangles people with piano wire but happens to be lying around everywhere. I just love the fact that he's a, like a dancing serial killer who does dad dancing and lights candles and is in love with James Spader, who quite clearly does not want to be his BFF. <laughs> I have not seen this one. And that's what's caused the issues. You've got to watch it. You know, I almost put a Keanu Reeves movie on here because of his accent in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I uh, I had to leave <laughs> it off. I love uh, Keanu Reeves, and yeah, maybe I should see The Watcher. I worked at a video rental store back when this came out. I think it was like, yeah, early 2000s, maybe the year 2000. Yeah. I remember seeing the cover a bunch, but I never got to see it. See, I love Keanu Reeves. I'm one of his biggest fans. I I really, I've watched some horrendous films that he's been in, <laughs> and uh, this was actually in the blockbuster, and I bought it. It was like an ex rental, obviously because nobody was renting it. <laughs> it was on sale, and I bought it. And I don't think me and my mum have ever laughed so much in a life as when we watched this. It was just fantastic. Mm, and I know it's played as like a serious thriller. Yeah, it should be a good fit. Like it's an interesting take to have the serial killer kind of like have a bit of an obsession with the police officer and be a bit, you know. He's trying to do things to please him instead of being the other way around. It's actually quite an interesting idea. It's just purely for the fact that James Spader is out of breath and tired for 90% of the film. 
and Keanu Reeves's overhyped and dancing for 90% of the film. So then you've got that kind of 10% where you think, that could have been really great. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, like not having seen The Watcher, thinking about James Spader being the good guy and Keanu Reeves being the bad guy, because it seems like those roles could be switched because Spader's normally like, he can play a really creepy bad guy. Yeah. And to be fair, Keanu Reeves is a little bit like, he's a little bit unnerving as the bad guy. It's just that he has these little character traits that they put in the script that just, as soon as you feel, feel like you're getting somewhere, you're like, oh, for God's sake, he's he's invited into a graveside with a bunch of beers. What serial killer would do that? And then like he takes him in a car on a car ride and they have couples therapy in the car. Oh, of like course. They start arguing like they're a couple. He's like, why? I've done all this for you. Why are you letting your work get involved? It's like, you're a fucking serial killer. Slice him in the neck. <laughs> does the fact that he's a dancer ever play into the plot? Like, does he ever dance away from, from no. bullets or anything? <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. He just dances round and round and round. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And it. There's like thousands of candles lit as well at the crime scene. So... He never accidentally catches fire or anything. Oh. And he's got a long coat. He's got like a long Matrix coat, and he's even got rip-off Matrix music. Oh, no. And this came out right after The Matrix? Yeah, it was like 2000, 2001. Oh, my gosh. Well. I know. I guess I owe it to myself to watch it as a Keanu Reeves fan as well. Yeah, you're going to have to embrace the dancing. Embrace it. Uh, speaking of embraces, my number two has many of them. This was Hollywood's second attempt to make Anna Nicole Smith a serious action star. And that's 1996's Skyscraper. It's already happening. And she is flying right into the heart of it. The enemy is here. The battlefield is locked. Skyscraper. seen this one. Oh, it is a delight. The very first movie that she was in is also worth watching for the hilarity. It's titled To the Limit. And in To the Limit, she's a normal person, but there's a scene where she takes a CD, like a compact disc, and throws it like a frisbee and it lodges into somebody's face. Oh my gosh, like some Captain America shit right there. It is. Uh, and wow. that's into the limit. And then that one obviously failed. So they put her in this skyscraper, which is essentially a diehard clone. But instead of a calm European bad guy played by Alan Rickman, we get a calm South African bad guy who quotes Henry V for no reason. Wow. Anna Nicole Smith, not a good actor, but this film tries to paint her as this like badass helicopter pilot. And we know she's a badass because we have a flashback scene in which she's shooting bottles with deadpan accuracy, like six bottles up, six bottles down. But when she sees bad guys in this skyscraper she's trapped in, she can't hit anything but stacks of paper and computers. She also carries a six bullet revolver that shoots 20 plus bullets. And um, sweet. she knows karate moves, which are hilarious. There's also, because it's Anna Nicole Smith and... It's like, well, we got to get butts in seats. There are several softcore porn type of scenes placed awkwardly throughout. Like she just gets home from a long day at work and we watch this extended slow motion shower, shower sequence. Oh, wow. Anna Nicole Smith probably drugged out of her mind while making this. Like she can barely deliver simple lines of dialogue. It appears to be so much work. She's almost drooling while she's talking. 
and there's one of my favorite lines in this film she says she she's trying to convince her boyfriend or husband or whatever to she's trying to convince him to have a kid and she says she says well excuse me for still believing and Sunday walks in the park and little babies skyscraper 1996 it was their attempt for a Anna Nicole Smith diehard and uh not good did not work out I'm gonna have to put that on my watch list for tomorrow you know I will send you a link to just the outtakes of it but the full film I'm pretty sure you can find on YouTube Oh, that's it. Well, that's my afternoon sorted tomorrow. <laughs> Let me know what you think. <laughs> All right, Carly Street. We're to the grand finale. Number one on unintentionally funny films. What do you got? So excited for this one. It's Titanic 2. 100 years later. The world's greatest ship. Most sophisticated ship ever created. The Titanic 2. Let's make history. We'll sail again. Have another one of your bad feelings, Captain? Oh, you could say that. <laughs> I yep. didn't even know there was one. Do you know what? I was speaking to three people today and they were like, Titanic 2, is that a thing? Yes, it is. Excuse me. Shane Van Dyke versus the ocean. It's one of Asylum's like crowning jewels. Ooh, Asylum. Always quality. Always. I mean, I tell you what, the CGI in this, when it's not in the dark, it's fantastic. There's a lot of shots of the boat on the water, just in pitch black, so you can literally just see, like, dots of the outline. Oh, of beautiful. The ship, which I'm guessing were perhaps windows. I don't know. Who knows? And then they've got, like, when, you, <laughs> when they're all having, like, a little party, considering it's the Titanic 2, and it's supposed to be this massive, grand adventure of, the Titanic's been rebuilt and we're going on this fantastic adventure that's going to retrace its original sort of journey. And they go in the little bit where they're all dancing. It looks like a village hall. There's like three tables, four chairs, like a few fairy lights. It looks absolutely dire. Why anyone would pay to be on that is, is beyond me. And then the best bit comes when it hits the iceberg, this time from, you know, um, a big wave. And they're all trying to... They're all trying to lean over as if the ship's, like, sinking and tilting. And so you just get lots and lots of shots of loads of extras that look like they've been stopped and started on CCTV, just trying to flail their arms with, the, like, doing a bit of a neo thing where they're moving the back a little bit, like, Aah. It's just, just for that, regardless to anything else, just the extras, they're just, you got to watch it for them. I need to wrap my head around this movie. Uh, did they, are they saying in this film that they like dragged the wreckage of the Titanic up or did they build another ship? Like they just decided to build the Titanic seat, like the number two. They decided to build another Titanic two. And then Shane Van Dyke, because he's a tricky fella, rushed it through a little bit faster than he should have because there was a bit of an anniversary dinner that they wanted to set sail on. <laughs> Lo and behold, what happens? The lifeboats. They look like Thunderbird 2. The lifeboats actually come out from underneath the bottom of the ship like some out of Stingray. <laughs> uh, but they're not safe in the water because there's a second wave with more icebergs. So if you go in the lifeboats, you're toast. Well, of course. It's fantastic. And then you've got Bruce Davidson in a helicopter as the Coast Guard, who's obviously, you know, on a plane that's running out of fuel while he's trying to tell the Titanic to, you know, move out of the way. 
are we to assume that the iceberg is the same iceberg that sunk the first Titanic? Like, is there going to be, are there going to be two ships on top of one another at the bottom of the ocean? That would probably have been more exciting. I mean, the opening scene is of a guy on a surfboard in Greenland, completely surrounded by ice. (laughs) If that doesn't, you know, I don't really think you should be in the water right now, mate. So when the ice cap breaks, I mean, that just sets the tone for the whole film, really. It's fantastic. There's there's nothing better than watching Shane Van Dyke take on water. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. How do I top that? Uh, I really can't. So, I'm. I mean, on deadly ground from 1994, Steven Seagal. In this land of frozen beauty, where a proud people make their home, ages oil is making a killing. The people here want to talk about the poisons in their environment. If Aegis One is not online and operational in 13 days, then the oil rights will revert back to the Eskimos, and that is not going to happen. We're in Falcon! But there is hope. And now, he's here. Steven Seagal is on deadly ground. You're an oil man. But I put out the fires. I stopped spills. Oh, I nearly had a Steven Seagal one, but it was Under Siege. From Under Siege to like 1999, or like up to up to Exit Wounds or Half Past Dead, he had this really weird period where it was just embarrassing to see him try and keep his status as an action star. And then <laughs> after that, he just looks like a, a sad piece of shit that needed to hang it up. I could have picked anything from Under Siege to like the Glimmer Man uh, and then all these oh, other yes. weird environmental movies. And this is one of those. If you can believe uh, Mark Wahlberg as a scientist, surely you can believe Steven Seagal as an environmental agent who he's obviously. Yeah. And an, another scientist guy who works for an oil company and also has karate skills or Aikido skills or whatever you well, practiced. Hey- who doesn't? He doesn't have karate skills on the side. Uh, that's, you know, that's a good question. Podcasters with karate skills, that's us. That could be the next show. <laughs> Top five podcasters with karate skills. Me, number one. <laughs> I'll be number two and that's the end of the list. <laughs> <laughs> he works as this environmental agent. He questions his boss about this Alaskan oil rig. And of course, like any boss who gets questioned by a subordinate, the boss is like, you need to die, so he just kills him, uh, or so he thinks. Steven Seagal is resurrected by some uh, Native Americans, and then he goes to kill the bad guys. At one point during this, though, he has this very spiritual journey in this dream sequence about how the earth is being hurt, and in response, he immediately goes and blows up an oil rig. Definitely, that's the work of God right there. Yeah, and then, of course, the movie ends with Steven Seagal, Known sex trafficker, multiple accusations of rape, but he's he really cares about the environment because he gives a speech about how evil oil companies are and how in pain the world is because of how humans prioritize money over the environment. I mean, I guess he's got a point. Maybe they could have had somebody else maybe do that speech. Yeah, or just like somebody else in the movie altogether, or just not have the movie altogether. I guess the uh, good thing is that Michael Caine's in it. If Michael Caine can't save a film, then there's no hope. I guess you gotta, you know, you gotta pay the bills. 
Carly Street, thank you so much for for joining me tonight. Uh, what's coming down the pipe for you? Like, obviously, we want people to listen to your podcast. I know you said you had some projects that were in production or pre-production when the pandemic hit. What can we look forward to that you're uh, working on? Uh, we've had a project in the pipeline for a long time called Room 19, which hopefully we're going to be able to... It's a little bit of a complicated project, so hopefully we're going to be able to start getting that back on track soon. Um, but before that, we've got a project a horror film called Old Sins, which we are able to start getting back into the swing of things of, of looking, and we just started casting for that. Um, and that's a horror film about a, a creepy old gentleman who lives in a house on his own who has a bit of a secret. And I'm going to do a dramatic pause there because it's going to be um, a bit of a homage to kind of the slasher films and the horror films and the silly films and stuff. So hopefully there'll be a lot of funny bits and a lot of gore and just something a little bit silly and funny for everyone to enjoy. And that's what people need right now. Yeah. Very cool. And of course, go listen to the Speak Easy Noir podcast so you can get your noir on. Or your nonsense on, whichever. It depends which episode. Yeah. And you can get your drink on because you guys give it like a, a drink recommendation during some of the episodes yeah jason makes a drink um that i nine times out of ten don't know what he's talking about so we have um 10 minutes of him mispronunciating things and me not understanding what he's telling (laughs) always fun uh thank you carly so much for coming on yeah it was really fun that's the end of the main show but remember to stick around for a few minutes if you're interested in my mortal Kombat review If you're a fan of the Force 5 podcast and want to be a guest on the show, the only requirement is that you love movies and want to talk about them. Come up with some interesting top five list topics and head to the website force5podcast.com for the show request form. Go rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow the Force 5 podcast on Instagram and Twitter so you can tell me which movies you found unintentionally funny. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch... Welcome to Mortal Kombat, a tournament between realms with very strict rules that no one follows or enforces. For some reason, if a realm wins ten in a row, they take over Earth or something. So it's up to all of your favorite Mortal Kombat characters and Cole Young a charisma-free mid-card MMA fighter that you'd be nervous putting a few bucks on to save the Earth. I've played Mortal Kombat for years. My dad bought us our first Mortal Kombat game on the Sega Genesis back when you had to call the Sega Hotline to get the blood code. I was never tournament-level good, but I could hold my own at the arcade with the first two games. I played heavily up through the N64 game, so I'm very familiar with the series and was genuinely excited for this new iteration, one that promised amazing fights, characters we know and love, and of course, buckets and buckets of gore. The film starts with a bang as the Lin Kuei clan massacres their rival faction, leading to our first fight scene between the men who would become Scorpion and Sub-Zero. It's bloody, CGI blood, but better than nothing, and the action was pretty cool. I was excited. And then we meet Cole Young. The Mortal Kombat franchise has nearly 100 characters to choose from to build a story around. Yet in this film, we follow Cole Young, a character with the spark of a bag of flour and fighting skills that might be good enough to compete in the Rex Kwon Do dojo. This dude sucked. His story sucked. He comes from the lineage of Scorpion. We've got the perfect setup for him to become the new Scorpion. 
He has visions of Scorpion when he looks in the mirror. And then as his powers manifest in a pivotal scene in the film, it turns out his actual power is plot armor. Seriously, your plot was already there with Sonya Blade. Have Sonya be the main character, heading towards this tournament without powers on her quest to receive them. I've heard the studio wanted an Asian lead actor. That's awesome. You have two amazing ones in Liu Kang and Kung Lao. Develop one of them. Must have been one of those scenarios where they wanted an Asian lead, but not that Asian. Instead, we're left with the human equivalent of Beige and his journey to save the world with his middling fight skills and his Vibranium Wakandan armor. I know, I know, Mortal Kombat shouldn't be about the story, it should be about the fights. Unfortunately, most of the fights were short, chopped up messes with some fatalities thrown in. Seriously, like, what happened with the editing in this film? It feels like half the movie was shot during reshoots. Scenes don't connect, characters jump positions. In one scene, they clearly just removed a fight scene between Shang Tsung and Melina, and it looks so weird. Some of the fatalities are cool, namely Kung Lao using his hat as a buzzsaw, and Sub-Zero ripping off Jax's arms, but others were kind of disappointing. How can you show us the famous Mortal Kombat pit level and not use the pit? That whole sequence felt super weird when they split everybody up, as if they were saying, alright nerds, here's two minutes of Mortal Kombat game stuff. The special effects during the fights were pretty good. I really liked Sub-Zero's ice powers. He was awesome. Uh, freezing somebody's blood to immediately stab them with it was an awesome moment. Now, I've seen a lot of love for Kano online. I thought he was overly annoying, like to the point that I just wanted him to bite it as soon as possible. And I get that's the point, but oh, he was so grating. Unfortunately, I'm sure we haven't seen the end of him. Raiden was also horribly miscast, and many of the other characters just weren't very interesting. Cabal stood out to me as one of the highlights, as he was one of my favorite characters to play as in Mortal Kombat 3. And of course, Kung Lao was great too. I really wish they would have just made the Asian lead, Kung Lao or Liu Kang and have, have him meet one of them in the temple. Super easy. Now in any video game adaptation, there's gonna be a level of fan service. Unfortunately, most of these moments felt so forced and very unnatural. Kano yelling, Kano wins, after tearing out the heart of, um, of Reptile was particularly cringeworthy, as was Kung Lao proclaiming flawless victory. The worst of course comes from Scorpion, as the man who could only speak Japanese says in perfect English, get over here. The better moments were those that felt like you had to be an actual fan to spot, like Shinnok's amulet or Katana's fan. The best fan service moment, of course, happens during the Liu Kang Kano fight when uh, Liu Kang spams the leg sweep. That took me straight back to the arcade. In closing, Mortal Kombat was a mess, and it's unfortunate. It reeks of studio interference, is marred by a lame character and embarrassing editing, and the fight scenes just aren't that good. There will be a sequel, so here's an idea. Hire someone who's really great at directing fight scenes. Grab Gareth Evans, grab Chad Stahelski, and pay them to do it right. I shouldn't be pausing HBO Max to see how much time is left because I'm bored while watching a movie that's based around fighting. I think there's still an opportunity for a really good Mortal Kombat movie. This one, though, this one is not it.